I apologise to those of you who might have heard this before. I also apologise to those of you who might be expecting Fiona Jukes, who's the Deputy Director for, for Communicating for Health, who was scheduled to do this slot, but unfortunately put her back out and uh, uh, on Friday was unable to really make it down here. Um, I told my wife, knowing that we had a very busy weekend, that I was going to have to do a little bit of time just putting something together. And her response to this was, firstly, grow up when she saw the title. Um, uh, Secondly, couldn't I get a better speaker? Um, And thirdly, could I not find somebody who actually knew what they were talking about? So on that basis, I can only go, go upwards, I think. I wanted to talk about a couple of health issues, one very rare and one probably much commoner than we think and is probably overlaps with the areas of interest of many of us in the audience, irrespective of our um, specialist fields. I just got an A-level in physics and any physics that I've ever learned has had to be applied to something relevant. But this seemed quite relevant in one sense, just to look at the actual pressure that was, uh, that was exerted at one's feet or one's head if one stood up. And if you are six foot, which I aspire to, uh, but I, despite my wife's uh, in, uh, uh, request, I haven't grown up to that, um, if, your foot pressure is considerably higher than your head pressure. And those of you who've jumped out of hot baths to answer the telephone or to rescue the child that's tried to die down the toilet or whatever um, and, and suddenly greyed out probably do realise that uh, blood, to, blood, blood back to brain is a problem. Um, personally, I've managed to headbutt and shatter a, a sink uh, a pedestal with my head uh, doing that. It wasn't a very spectacularly successful outcome. So syncope, jumping out of a hot bath, um, or the long-term effects of, of having a high pressure at your, your feet can lead to a variety of vascular problems. We were, I think, indebted to Fiona and Oz yesterday to touch on what happens to giraffes, because jumping out of this hot bath, it's only a six-foot shift, but if you get your head down and then come back up again um, a, a long way, you've, you've got a, an awful change in pressure. We'll come back to that in a, in a moment. Standing up actually puts a lot of stress on things. You need to be getting enough blood, oxygen, nutrients, whatever, to your brain, your central drive, to keep going. Um, your uh, skeleton is hopefully better aligned than the, the example I've got on here with its uh, slip, uh, its worshipable slip. Um, and you need to have appropriate anti-gravity mechanisms, appropriate uh, cardiovascular uh, and cardiorespiratory response. And all that's got to be controlled automatically. You don't, you don't have time to think about it. So this giraffe issue, I think, is, is actually quite fascinating. Uh, Oz talked about them having TEDs yesterday, having um, tight fascia around their legs. Because, you know, if, you're, if your head's 20 feet above your feet, it's an awful pressure difference. And to go down have your nose in the water and suddenly have a crocodile coming to lip your nose and having to lift up quickly, you'd think half the giraffes would keel over and just be crook, crook bait. They've got similar fascia in their, in their necks that prevent and, and uh, enable anti-gravity um, blood flow towards the brain. Um, they've got a heart that is apparently 12 kilos and it beats... Well, if you think about animals... 
the little ones have fast heart rates, and the, uh, that works for humans, um, and the older you get, the, the slower, in a sense, the heart rate gets. Um, but if you, if you go up the animal kingdom um, to an elephant, their heart, resting heart rate is in the region of 25 per minute. I'm not sure who did the ECGs in that little, little bit of the, the blue whale yesterday. Giraffe's heart rate, resting heart rate, is 150, bizarrely. And it seems to have these adaptive mechanisms to having massive postural changes. We've tried it in humans. It doesn't seem to work so well. You end up having to hold the neck up. And uh, it doesn't seem to work very well in the military either. There's an even better one where it looks like the paramedics are kicking the crap out of the guy that's keeled over. I thought I had to put in the family photos as well. We do have various challenges to upright gait that... Uh, and the ones off to the right of the picture are really self-induced or self-inflicted. I thought we'd do this, perhaps, if it's okay with you, in, in, in the form of two cases. One of the rarity, um, and one of the, um, the, the, the commoner one. I'm not going to cover things like orthostatic or postural hypotension, um, the CSF leak, low-pressure headaches, um, or autonomic failure as such, uh, nor the iatrogenic or personal interference with one's reflexes. I'd like just to concentrate on two, in a sense, naturally recurring, but I think poorly understood conditions. Okay, you're a medical take. 77-year-old woman admitted with breathlessness and collapse. She got breathless and she sort of uh, slumped a bit. But it's been going on for six months. Worse than exercise? Not a, oh, sorry, big pardon, my arrow's slipped. It's just speared hypertension. But her effort tolerance had reduced. <coughs> um, um, and she's got these background health issues with perhaps not an un, unusual or uncommon uh, list of drugs. The breathlessness specifics, we asked about all the, the usual things, you know, what, what triggers it, what, uh, do you have a wheeze, whatever. All it came back to was, I'm just breathless. She couldn't give anything else. There were no other clues as to what was going on. Recordings, pretty usual cardiorespiratory findings, and she appeared pretty chirpy in bed. So did the usual basic treatments with a plan to just remobilise, see how she got on, get the physios to uh, uh, provoke <coughs> breathlessness. X-ray looks pretty normal to me. Chest X-ray, uh, sorry, um, ECG was pretty normal. And... We didn't turn up an awful lot. So moving away from the, the standard query UTI, query respiratory infection um, approach, there wasn't a lot to support that. We waited to see what the physios could come up with. And when they did kick her into action, she dropped her sats quite dramatically. And that was confirmed when, when they sat her back down again. You know, one thing leads to another. Obvious pulmonary embolism. Fill her up with Clexane, send her off for a CTPA. But actually, very clear CTPA, very clean CTPA. Might have missed something small, I suppose, but it wasn't, we're not, we didn't feel that we were missing something that was actually causing her hypoxia. And when she came back from, she was chirpy back in the bed again, coming back from there. She came back pink and looking, well, her saturations were remarkably good on air. The radiologist actually would take the credit for curing her with radiation, but I think there was probably more to it than that. So, in those circumstances, what do you do as a thinking, a, th a thinking consultant? Probably the same as most of the consultants in the room. You surround yourself with the bright peri-paces 
uh, people who actually know more medicine across a broad spectrum, that, and, but you try and encourage them to say that it was your guidance that got them to the diagnosis. Just for the purposes of... There's, there's no prizes for this, I apologise, but uh, um, those of you who haven't heard this talk, do they know what's, what, what might be going on here? Could be pulmonary AVMs, it could be. Uh, yeah. So you're thinking there, presumably, is that she's shunting and we're getting a, a postural shift in the oxygen saturations and, and uh, <coughs> uh, uh, partial pressure of oxygen. So, yeah, could have been a pulmonary AVM, and the mechanism is exactly the same. Um, and the fancy Greek version of it um, is the platypnea orthodeoxia syndrome, which happens relatively infrequent, or is recognised relatively infrequently, but I think the respiratory physicians here will see much more of that with pulmonary AVMs. Her oxygenation is fine when she's lying down, and when she's sat up or stood up, and particularly if she exercises, she desaturates because she gets a right-to-left shunt that occurs at that time. And the mechanisms probably have to be both anatomical and hemodynamic. There are various forms of hemodynamic changes. There could be uh, pulmonary AVMs, it could be an interatrial um, right-to-left shunt, and there are a variety of other uh, right-to-left shunts that that can occur. And there has to be some form of anatomical variation, which may be post-surgery, it may be the way they've evolved, developed, it may be post-trauma. Um, if you echo these people, you, will, you, you need to look very hard at their interatrial septum. Um, you're looking for a PFO, you're looking for um, anything that might suggest uh, an interatrial aneurysm or septal aneurysm that could be hiding a, a, a shunt. If you send these people for echo, most people are echoed lying down and you may not see what's going on. They probably need to have bubble contrast given while they're being echoed upright. Are people familiar with bubble contrast? Sorry, just to be... Just saline, shake it up, squirt it in to uh, an IV cannula. I think it gives you a little snowstorm flare. There are various anatomical features that are recognised with this mm-hmm. as well. Mustation um, valve, um, elongated station valves, for example, that seem to channel um, blood appropriately through the, the urinatrial defect. And if you've got a shunt, probably the logical thing to do is to shut it. So this lady, she had her um, secundum ASD de- demonstrated. She had her bubble contrast that whistled from right to left uh, um, when she was sat up. And it was suggested that she had one of uh, Richard Miles' very clever bits of kit um, inserted in her, uh, a, a clam valve, just to seal off the, uh, the, the septal defect. Um, but for whatever reasons, um, she um, wasn't keen on having anything done at all, and her choice was to remain as she was. So we didn't fix her, but at least we identified what was going on and left her with that choice. The concerns about suitability were more the, the vascular access because she was quite a small lady. That was, that was the only issue. But you're doing um, uh, septal closures in, in small people, um, in children, um, for, for a start, so you might have to redo them. So I don't think the suitability was a big issue. It was more her wish. So that's the rarity the one that I think is commoner is epitomised by a young lady who I'm actually seeing again tomorrow afternoon. Refer to ED, palpitations and dizziness, she's had a syncopal episode. Not that uncommon 
uh, presentation probably, um, and not a lot to find really. She was seen in the emergency department here. We, she gave a history that sounded very much much like um, situational vasovagal syncope, but we felt that it was, as this was a recurring episode, um, we felt that it was important to put a loop recording onto her. So um, actually we were able to do that that day because of uh, a false link, false clinic link. Stuck, that, stuck the loop recorder on her, sent her away, see her back. Um, it was actually about 10 days later in an outpatient clinic. Um, loop recording was absolutely pristinely normal, at least with the, within the parameters that it's counting. Now, this is a young lady, who's quite an impressive young lady. She was intellectually pretty sharp, high achieving at school, aiming for medicine, expectation, predicted expectation of getting the right results. In fact, predicted expectation of acing those results quite easily um, and being able to combine that with her musical interests and her sporting interests. And she was playing uh, hockey at um, school uh, district and, and, uh, and county level. So no, no sort of slouch um, in, in, any, in any line. But she'd had these symptoms for about a year and they crept up on her. Fatigue, palpitations, dizziness, academically slowing down, not being able to manage the sporting achievements that she had before, getting flushing attacks. We thought that might be relevant. She's slim, but she found that if she, was, uh, if she had a large meal, she, uh, her symptoms were exacerbated. She found that if she exercised, there was real significant payback. She was knackered for a couple of days. And not surprisingly, if you get those things, you tend to do less. You tend to shy away from those things that are interfering with your quality of life and perhaps do them less. She, wasn't, she uh, fell off the scale in terms of her academic achievements. She got, um, not surprisingly, uh, uh, replaced in, in the hockey circuit. If you talk to her, she's, she's really bright. She's a you know, smart, smart cookie. Um, and, uh, but but she's, she's found it very difficult to, to focus and to, to re- retain attention. And that can be the things that really interest her as well as the things that all of us could probably have reduced concentration and uh, attention span with, such as talks like this. Examination was fine. She was well appreciated and understood. In your late teens, as a girl with uh, fatigue and dizziness and um, falling off the scale, naturally you just need to get over it. Silly girl, not really a problem. Um, she's bright enough to be able to coach her replies in ways that are printable, but what she was thinking was very much unprintable because she knew something was going on, but she wasn't able to convince people that actually she had a real problem. And she's presented this to family, to peers, to, um, to healthcare professionals, um, and it didn't seem to be getting through. Rightly or wrongly, um, you come anywhere near hospital, we um, upset the biochemist and the haematologist by sending them uh, results that we hope are going to be normal, um, the short snacking test, normal ECG, normal chest x-ray, uh, further loop recording to try and catch something on the assumptions could be uh, arrhythmic, either tacky or bratty. Normal echo, 24-hour um, blood pressure recording, urinary cats, 5-HIA, that kind of blew the flushing out. We uh, did a chromogranin because the, the endocrinologist told us that's what we're supposed to do nowadays. don't know what it means, but it, we did it. <laughs> All normal. So two weeks later, you get this, well, whenever we got these tests back, you get this girl back to the clinic saying, well, actually, all your tests are normal. So where next? Does she have any more symptoms? 
Sorry? She hasn't actually, no. no. Syncope was something that um, was very intermittent. It wasn't catamenial either. It wasn't uh, um, men- uh, menstrual. Hmm? She wasn't pregnant, no. no. We didn't test that, but we, to be fair, I saw her with her parents. It wasn't, it's not the type of question that you feel comfortable asking at your first meeting as well. <laughs> Actually, she probably, knowing the uh, um, cynical approach of my ED colleagues, uh, she probably had a pregnancy test on arrival, irrespective. You know, she's a childbearing age, somewhere between 8 and 80. She's, um, she, she's, uh, she probably had that done. Sorry? Exercise DGT. Exercise DGT. We didn't do that, actually, but... Um, it would have been a reasonable suggestion. We didn't do it, but uh, um, uh, because we went a different route first, um, it probably wouldn't have shown. It, it wouldn't have shown any arrhythmia. We wouldn't have provoked anything specific. I'll let you off the hook in a moment. Sorry. Reveal. Reveal. Yeah, but you're going to get this scarring here. Where periods from? Periods from. Tilt. Tilt. Why? She might have pots. She might have pots. Exactly. Orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Okay, there you go. We did a standing test as well. Just to, okay, so she has a significant tachycardic response in a tilt table. She has a significant tachycardic response to being stood up for a few minutes. It didn't take more than a few minutes. So that vindicates your theory in terms of meeting the diagnostic criteria, at least in a tachycardic response. We probably see quite a lot of people with postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. But there's a spectrum, and some just get on with it, and some get quite significantly affected. It's been around for a long time, and it's been linked to lots of things. It's more women than men. It's younger rather than older. It's going to come on at a formative stage in their life where their um, academically, sports, employment... Is all its uh, all those things are at stake? It is distinct from other things you might provoke on tilt testing or standing up. What about the response to eating? Come to that, but it, it's um, it's linked in as well, and might be a means of uh, of managing as well. But we'll come we'll come back to that, Phil. Some of the other symptoms, and she has quite a few of these when you actually talk to her. Um, she got the dizziness and the, the lightheadedness. Um, syncope did occur. She was in the unlucky 30% of, of having syncope with, with POTS. Uh, we didn't or haven't really demonstrated any significant postural hypotension, um, although she has been to see uh, Chris Mathias in London, who put her on some, uh, some midodrine. But uh, we'll again come back to that as, a, as, as part of the, the, the story. The palpitations she's experienced, but only on standing up. Not much of a headache. She gets some headache, um, but not, not a great deal of difference. She does get chest discomfort, chest pain. Her echo is normal. She hasn't got much of off prolapse. She describes what they talk about in the books as brain fog, which actually sounds a very descriptive term to me, just in terms of the way it maybe helps you to appreciate what she's going through. She's not in the 50% who gets this um, so-called acrocyanosis, where you, your hands um, uh, and feet, and uh, sometimes, and perhaps characteristically, nose uh, go cold um, and, and cyanosed. I have accused my wife of that as well, but it's usually in bed at night and there's hands and feet. I'm not sure about the nose. It's going way too fast. 
often follows the trigger. And so whoever suggested pregnancy, um, very reasonable suggestion. As far as I am aware, she is, she is not pregnant. Um, this has been going on for a lot longer than a, a, the standard human gestation period, so I felt fairly comfortable with that one, as a trigger at least. But some other triggers are there, um, surgery, trauma, viral infections. So not surprisingly, there's perhaps a link across into the chronic fatigue, post-viral fatigue syndromes as well. And there's various other links. Um, John King here will see a proportion of these people with the hypermobility uh, Ehlers-Danlos group. And there's other things that are kicking around that are differentials. Inappropriate sinus tachycardia is sinus tachycardia. It's, uh, you just happen to be reset at a higher level, but it's non-postural. Cardiogenic or neurocardiogenic syncope, uh, medicated, okay, newly mediated, or perhaps newly medicated if we've, if we've poisoned them as well. It was a typo, but it will work. Um, but yeah, th- th- assuming that, that people are drug, drug free and pacemaker free and things, then um, any neurocardiogenic syncope could overlap here, or you'd be using that as a differential. And similarly, all the other things. Easy things to, do, to get rid of are check that they're, whether they're anemic, dehydrated, um, make sure that the uh, euthyroid, usual panoply of things that you're going to check. There is eventually some expert agreement on the diagnosis but some controversy as well, because there's such an overlap. This is a sort of grey diagnosis, I think. So heart rate response to standing up or to being tilted up. If anybody's been on a tilt table, it probably induces a tachycardic response just in going up to begin with anyway, because it's unfamiliar. So the diagnostic criteria, greater than greater than equal to 30, um, uh, a rise of increasing of greater than equal to 30, Mm -hmm. or uh, a rise to above 120 just on, on standing up. There is an overlap, though. Some people will have um, either postural or neurocardiogenic vasodepressor syncope as well. So you may unmask more things. Your tilt test may become considerably more complicated. You suggested that you may have difficulty inter- interpreting it because there may be other things that are going on as well. So the baseline tests we've, we've uh, done, we've tilted her, we've stood her up. The head-up tilt is um, more sensitive than specific. Um, false positives tend to creep into head-up tilting. Um, standing test is probably um, as good, and you can do that in an outpatient clinic. And uh, when I see somebody in an outpatient clinic, I will get the, the nurses very kindly run an ECG for me with the people, person lying down, and then we just get them to stand up um, and wait for 10 minutes and, and re-ECG them. It's pretty crude, but it gives you um, an idea of what's going on. Plasma sodium, uh, plasma neuroadrenaline rather, um, and urinary catecholamines um, may be very relevant. And looking at some of the other um, testing, the plasma volume studies and things may be relevant because there are three different theories as to why this may actually happen. One is dysautonomic or dysautonomia, dysautonomic um, dysfunction. Second is your hypovolemic, and the third is that a proportion, perhaps ten percent, are hyperadrenergic. And that may be. Partly a, re- a receptor downregulation, therefore a higher uh, noradrenaline um, response. So you're going to clear out all the, re- all the reversible bits, the easy bits. Um, increased fluid intake, contrary to usual blood pressure management, we're actually probably going to be asking them to take more salt rather than less salt. Graded exercise to try and build back up again works, usually. Small frequent meals, unlike my approach to eating, um, 
is, is the better way because of the, the risk of postprandial hypotension where you dump all the blood into your gut and you take it away from your brain. Um, and in my case, there's very little perfusion going there and quite a lot down there. So it's <laughs> Christmas lunch effect. Um, caffeine pre-meals, it pushes your blood pressure up a little bit. It may help. Just, um, to, it may help with the, uh, with, with the dizziness, but it may equally trigger your, um, your tachycardic response. And you want these people usually to avoid alcohol, if possible. But you're then talking to teenagers and students and people. Peripheral support, you know, like the giraffe's Ted stockings, may be necessary. And uh, get, getting them to move around, like I'm doing out of nerves, but actually by continuing to, to move around, they're continuing to enhance the venous return, so they're actually uh, improving the dizziness. If they come in acutely because of their dizziness or their, or their tachycardia, then either giving them some fluid on the presumption that this is the hypovolemic version may actually be helpful. And that can be oral or cracking in a litre or two of saline. And then manage them long term, or longer term. We are looking for volume expansion, perhaps. Again, in the group that are volume deplete. So fluid cortisone, perhaps with uh, potassium and magnesium supplements if necessary. Have to admit, I'm not that keen on using things like clonidine and methyl dopa, but we have used beta blockers in the um, the uh, hyperadrenergic group, of which uh, I've only seen two. So that's really not it's not a big it's a sort of N of two series. It's hardly a series. Um, and um, vasoconstrictors are used in those people who, are, who have postural uh, or um, who have a blood pressure drop, a demonstrable blood pressure drop, and midodrine is the one that we're tending to use. The others are there that are listed, but um, uh, I, I have to admit I've steered away from them in general. I, I sort of fell into this diagnosis dealing with a, um, a solicitor's wife who I really didn't know what I was doing for 10 years. Um, and eventually had her on midodrine, pyridostigmine and ibuprofen by complete chance because what we're doing with this is working on um, treating the symptoms. But I think this may be a genuine syndrome rather than just a symptom collection of the various things that are there. And it does link in to some of the hypermobility problems, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndromes. If it's real, then there are multiple effects that are attributable to lots of different systems and it will cross many of our spectra in specialty terms. You got me thinking yesterday that actually Hughes and Tony's work on genetics could actually be very interesting in this group, um, looking at ACE and Kaidin and other um, genotypes. But I will leave you with that concept because my wife was right. I don't know what I'm talking about, but I don't think anybody else really does either. Thank you for listening.